to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. So much to get into this week. I'm just going to get right into it. Usually I have some pleasantries, but there's just been so much going on. And I have a great interview with former federal prosecutor, constitutional law professor, and the host of the Talking Feds podcast, Harry Littman. He's coming up. He is this week's guest. And uh, he's a hoot and he's got a lot to say about what's going on with this Michael Flynn disaster, just the corruption of the Department of Justice, given their decision to drop the charges against Michael Flynn after he pleaded guilty twice to lying to the FBI and the implications of this. Also, um, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means and what, what the hell is Obamagate? What is going on? Donald Trump is running around screaming about Obamagate and tweeting it in all caps. What, what, what is that? Um, so Harry Littman will be joining me soon uh, to talk a little bit more about his perspective on this and the implications of what's going on here uh, with the Department of Justice. But I also wanted to talk about um, this whistleblower, Dr. Richard Bright, Rick Bright. He testified this week in front of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, one of their subcommittees. And I I touched briefly on him, uh, I think in the last podcast, all the days are running into each other, um, but on the last podcast, and, you know, he is a, he's a hero. The courage of this guy, you know, it's not easy to be a whistleblower. There, there are protections, again, you know, to protect you from retaliation in theory. But we've seen how this administration has treated whistleblowers in the past, right? Well, Dr. Rick Bright, he was the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, also known as BARDA. And he was removed from his job back in April, on April 20th, basically because he was trying to do his job, sounded the alarm about how the Obama, I mean, the Trump administration was not doing what it needed to do to implement a plan for the pandemic that was coming. He knew back in January, like, hey, we've got a problem here. What's the plan and who's executing it? And instead of listening to him, he was cast aside, removed from these meetings, and inevitably he ended up on the chopping block where they removed him as the director of BARDA which is responsible for developing a vaccine, by the way. So this is a really important agency and it falls under the Department of Health and Human Services. They remove him because he was one of the people that not only was screaming about, hey, we don't have enough masks. We don't have, we're not prepared. What's going on? He also refused to entertain Donald Trump and his cronies on the whole hydroxychloroquine miracle cure bullshit that was going on back in March. He said, look, it's not based on science. We have other things we're trying to do here. And you're trying to get me to waste time and resources, precious time and resources on chasing down some miracle cure, running around with Jared Kushner's cronies as well. I'm not doing it. We're not doing that. And he didn't play ball. So they removed him. Well, he didn't take it lying down. And he filed a, I think it was 69 page whistleblower complaint. The Office of Special Counsel, which I explained last podcast or the one before, they're the 
They're the office in the executive branch that handles whistleblower complaints. They're supposed to be there to vet them, to see if they have merit. And if they do, they're there to help um, facilitate the process to protect the whistleblower and get it investigated. Well, they determined that his complaint had merit, that he was in fact retaliated against because of political pressure. So he goes up to Congress and he testifies. Well, he went there to testify in his own, quote, personal capacity because they didn't fire him directly. They transferred him to another division somewhere else in HHS. He said, F you, I'm not going to that job because this was retaliatory. I'm not showing up. So I'm filing this complaint, opening a formal process, and then we'll take it from there. So he went and testified. Well, I got to tell you, it was very compelling. I watched most of the most of the hearing and he did not mince any words. None, none at all. And I give him so much credit for that because imagine if Bob Mueller or um, others had testified as directly and unambiguously as Dr. Bright did. (laughs) If only one could wish, (laughs) I think we'd be in a different place. Donald Trump would have been, you know, impeached and removed and, you know, they, but so many other people just minced words and they were very careful with things. And, you know, Mueller's testimony was so frustrating, even though we know what he thought he put it in writing in the Mueller report, but he refused to, he refused to just say it in plain language. So the average American could understand the concepts. No, he was very, very erudite in things and very careful because that's what he does. He's old school and, you know, we are where we are. But back to Dr. Bright, I just want to point out a couple of things, um, some some things to highlight in his testimony, because I think it's really important that everyone watched it or paid attention. But this is a really underreported story, I think, because he strikes to the heart of the failure of the Trump administration's response. We kind of know stories have been dripping out over the last couple of weeks about how Trump didn't take it seriously, didn't read his presidential daily briefings, all the warnings that were coming. He was like, eh, whatever, I don't care. Um, And 10 weeks went by, which was a critical amount of time that the United States ended up behind the curve compared to other countries because the president of the United States was dithering and denying it. Not only was he not taking it seriously, he was downplaying it. And we've seen the videos, we've seen the ads, we've seen the reports. It's, it's, uh, it's there. It's unequivocal what his response was. The Democratic hoax and it's no you know, worse than the flu and blah, 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 blah. Okay. I mean, it took him until March 13th to finally take this seriously. So when he declared the national emergency and that was after the stock market was tanking and all this. Well, Dr. Bright's testimony confirms that there were there was an active um i guess contingent within the federal government of trump lackeys who were downplaying this for political purposes because they did not want to spook the markets or um they didn't want to whatever the reason was they didn't want to piss off the president because he wasn't taking it seriously so they got the memo but the career people the scientists the doctors the people who spent their entire careers dedicated to protecting the American public from pandemics and and uh, outbreaks or bioweapons. That's what BARDA does, by the way. That's their job um, is to develop medical countermeasures and um, vaccines and, and to procure 
the supplies and things that we need in order to treat the, the public, God forbid there was a bio attack, a biomedical attack, or a pandemic. So Dr. Bright's position was pretty important. So I would listen to him, right? No, not this administration, because they they frown upon expertise and science. So Dr. Bright, as early as January, he testified that he was starting to get these really alarming emails and seeing some data coming out of China where they were like, uh, this is going to be bad, this coronavirus thing, and we're not prepared. Like, wh- how come we're not dusting off the pandemic, um, the pandemic uh, playbook that we had? Where, where is that? How come we don't have people in charge? We don't have protocols ready to go. What's going on? And during his testimony, he said that he was, um, that he received, where is it right here? I'm going to read from it. Okay, here it is. He was asked by Representative uh, John Sarbanes out of Maryland to describe a moment where he had that sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach about the federal response to the pandemic. Bright cited an email he received from a U.S.-based medical supply manufacturer that warned of mask shortages. This was in January. Mike Bowen, an executive at Texas-based Prestige Ameritech, had reached out to the government officials in January with an offer to ramp up production of N95 respirator masks, an offer that was ultimately declined. Now, this is important because we have seen that our medical workers and frontline folks were using garbage bags and, and makeshift masks and wearing the same masks over and over again, which put them at risk. Why? Right? Everyone wondered, what the hell is that about? How is the greatest, richest country in the world so... Uh, inept that they weren't able to get basic medical supplies to the people who need it most. Let me say something else about this before I I finish reading it. In the beginning, when uh, government officials, the CDC, they were trying to tell the American public, oh, you don't need a mask, you don't need a mask, and blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. They knew the seriousness of this, but they didn't want the American people hoarding the N95 masks like they did toilet paper because they didn't want the medical professionals not to have access to them. It had nothing to do with protecting the public or protecting the pub- what was in the best interest of the public's health. I'm sorry. There's no way because it's common sense that you would need, if, it's, if you need, the medical workers need them, why, wouldn't it, why shouldn't Americans have them to protect the, each other? Imagine if people, if we actually had the proper supply of N95 masks and people would have worn them early on if the government wasn't being disingenuous about that because of Trump's bullshit. If we would have been able to tell people, look, you need to get an N95 mask and start wearing it immediately. How many lives would have been saved then? How much of the transmiss- the transmissibility of this would have been um, mitigated if people had worn N95 masks early on? Well, part of the reason the government was so squeamish about telling the American public to get their masks is because we didn't have enough. And we can go on about why the national stockpile wasn't, wasn't resupplied. But, you know, after the Obama administration left, they've been out for almost three years. So what the hell was the Trump administration doing this entire time? That's plenty of time to restock the the stockpile. So this nonsense about blaming the Obama administration is just that bullshit as usual and deflecting blame because that's what Trump does, right? So during the hearing, 
What was uh, Dr. Bright's response to that question? He said, quote, I'll never forget the emails I received from Mike Bowen indicating that our mask supply, our N95 respirator supply was completely decimated. And he said, quote, we're in deep shit. The world is, and we need to act. Bright said he raised the issue at the highest levels I could in HHS and got no response. I heard that live when it, when he testified to it and it, and, and it gave me, it gave me chills because I'm thinking, I know what that's like. You know, I've worked in government long enough and I've seen how the bureaucracy works where you're trying to get something done and people just ignore you. And this was something that was literally life or death. And Dr. Bright was getting not only ignored, but then removed from meetings. He testified about that as well, that he was taken out of the chain of command and out of the decision-making ladder. That's insane. And what's the reason for that? Because he wouldn't play ball. You know, this isn't just something, just some benign government program that somebody wants a contract or, you know, this, we were talking about life or death and a mass, a global pandemic, mass death here in the United States was at risk. And what happened? Something else he uh, testified to, another reason why he was retaliated against, in his opinion, was because he refused to direct millions of dollars, specifically $300 million, to a small, a small pharmaceutical company whose owners were friends with his immediate boss. And they were, you know, he wanted them to develop some, some vaccine that was hydroxychloroquine related, some anti-malarial thing. And he was like, listen, there's just not enough scientific evidence to back to justify this level of um of financial resources. Now, no, no, I'm not doing it. And that was the final straw. Crazy. And uh, you know, I just hope that I hope that people pay attention to this. What what motivation does Dr. Bright have to make any of this up? He doesn't. He doesn't. Trump attacked him, of course, called him a disgruntled employee. He doesn't know him and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's so old. It's just, it's just so old. He doesn't know anybody, right? He doesn't know any of them. I don't know who that is. He's going to deny Melania soon. <laughs> um, I just, I just find it. Well, Dr. Fauci, when he testified also this week from, from partial quarantine, because he was exposed to the vice president's staffer who tested positive, which is another development. Looks like there's um, panic in the White House because there, are Katie, Katie Miller, who was married to Stephen Miller, good Lord. Um, but she tested positive and was running around with no mask because the culture inside the West Wing was everyone was cavalier about it. Ah, yeah, whatever, we're not wearing masks because Trump doesn't. Yeah, okay, well, there's an outbreak happening in the, in the West Wing thanks to this negligence here. And um, so- Pence and others are now quarantining as a result of it, just to be safe. So Fauci testified in front of um, a Senate committee, along with Redfield, who is Dr. Redfield, who's the head of the CDC, who is just awful, so politicized the CDC. Ugh. Him and Dr. Burks are the ones who politically compromise themselves the most. Fauci has tried to walk the line as best he can, but he has never compromised his uh, his, his integrity on this. I think he made a mistake at the end of February where he tried to tell people, Oh, you know, you don't really have to worry about it just yet. I think he probably, probably regrets that, but that's about the only time he's ever really done that. And now it feels as though, I mean, the reports have been 
that Trump has been frustrated with Fauci because he hasn't been towing the line the way Burks and others have. And, you know, Fauci's a tough Italian from New York. He's not putting up with it. He has been the top infectious disease expert in this country since 1984. Anthony Fauci is a national treasure. And these crazies that are out there trying to attack him, that's exactly what they are. They're crazies. And Fauci testified this week that you can, we cannot be cavalier about the way that this, this disease affects children because studies are coming out showing that some kind of weird inflammatory thing is happening with, with children they think is a byproduct of coronavirus. And that also, we can't just go and open up schools in, in the fall thinking we're going to have a vaccine, everything's going to be honky-dory. He said, no, that's fantasy land. So he's being a bit more frank at this point. Because remember, they originally thought, oh, it's only going to be 60,000 people dead by August only, I say. You know, all 60,000 people will be dead. But now they've revised it to 147,000 because we're already up to over 85,000. And it's, you know, not really subsiding. So, you know, this is this is not a joke anymore for, for people and especially medical professionals and the scientists who know they, they know they I just don't think they can stay silent anymore, especially since Trump is trying to and his people are trying to ignore the pandemic is still raging. They're acting like, well, we're just going to pivot now. Yeah, well, you're on your own. You know, uh, states need to open up. People have to go back to work. And we've had this debate about weighing the economic versus the health costs of all of this. And that's the an ongoing debate. But you have to be responsible. And Fauci said this. He he testified on earlier in the week and then and Bright was on, on Thursday. But Fauci was like, look, we can't just leapfrog over these, these guidelines on how to reopen or else people are going to die. You're going to have more clusters and it's going to happen. But Trump doesn't care because this idea of a pandemic is inconvenient for him. It's inconvenient. And these lunatics that are protesting at state capitals again, like in Michigan, where these crazies are running around with armed rocket launchers and shit. I mean, it's just nuts. The the Michigan state legislature had to cancel a session because they were they were worried about threats of bodily harm to their legislators. That's this is crazy. I saw a um I saw a protest video. It was um like a local Long Island, New York, uh news station, like in New Jersey, we have something called News Channel 12, which is like all New Jersey news local. I guess they have something like that in Long Island in Suffolk County. And this reporter, I saw it on Twitter, and this reporter, he said how he'll never forget what it was like covering this protest. These people were, were rabid. They weren't wearing masks. They wouldn't leave him alone. They would not socially distance. They kept like following him around the reporter he asked them to back up. They were like, no, I've taken, one of them said, I've taken hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I'm fine. And he's like, get away from me. These people were nuts. And the signs, there was actually a sign that said, hang Fauci. Yeah. Hang Dr. Fauci. This is in Long Island, New York. These people are lunatics. And I worry about what this element, what they're going to do. Where are we, where are they going to be? when you know Trump loses, let's pray. I worry about armed conflict. I worry about civil unrest. I, I really do. And I've been saying this for years, but this is, and things calm down a little bit in that, but this whole thing about the anti-vaxxers combining with the, with the anti-lockdown people, and now it's become some kind of liberty second amendment uh, issue. I, I, 
and Trump is Trump is encouraging them, not trying to tamp it down. He's ramping it up because these are his people. He actually tweeted to thank his keyboard warriors, these crazies on on Twitter, and a lot of them are Russian bots, like just flying in the face of the Mueller investigation and how Russia manipulated social media and created fake accounts to stoke dissent in this country. He doesn't care. Trump doesn't care. This is, he has never been about America first. Donald Trump is about Donald Trump first and always has been and always will be. And that is just the frustrating part about all this because so many people have been duped by it. I just, oh, it's so obvious what this guy does on top of being a sociopath. But that's the, um, we need to, I'm going to continue to, to follow the Dr. Bright situation. He's requesting that he be reinstated back into his job, which he should be. And we'll see what happens with that. But um, kudos to him. I wish there were more courageous people that would, that would come out. You know, he said lives were lost because the warnings went unheeded. Yeah, they were, unfortunately. Speaking of that, of, of how, what a disastrous response this Trump administration has had to the pandemic, I'm going to pivot to what's going on with Michael Flynn and this whole Obamagate nonsense. And then I'm going to bring in Harry Littman, former federal prosecutor, to talk about his perspective on this. But this whole thing about Michael Flynn and, and, and these, these accusations of some kind of attempt by the Obama administration to take out Trump and all that, it is one big distraction. It is a fake scandal and it's a distraction to keep the Fox News Trump cult focused on that instead of the fact that tens of thousands of Americans are being are, are dying every day because of Trump's failure to lead properly concerning coronavirus. Bottom line, Trump's re-election was hinging on the economy. That is the only thing he has consistently pulled well on, that people think he did a good job with the economy, Right. We can argue about how much credit he deserves for that, whether he inherited it from Obama, whether these trends were already there. He just didn't hurt it. And the tax cuts helped in some areas with businesses and jobs. Okay, fine. We can have that argument. However, the economy is an an important metric when you're going into a presidential election, believe me. So there's a reason why the economy, it's the economy, stupid, was one of the most iconic lines that came from um, Bill Clinton's uh, consultant, what's his name? Carville, James Carville, who I should get on the podcast. Um, he'd be a lot of fun. He's a hoot. He's a tough guy, man. I really wish the Biden campaign would hire him or have him consulting in, in an informal way or something because he gets the Trump people. But anyway, the economy is a huge metric and that's important because people react based on how it affects them personally, right? If you're doing well, are you better four years now than you were four years ago, those kinds of questions. And that stuff resonates. It still does. And, but the economy is tanking. You've got 35 million now, we're up to 35 million people unemployed, which is why Trump is pushing so hard to get the, uh, quote, economy open back up because he knows that it's all about the, it's all about jobs and the economy. So he knows this. And that's why the whole Flynn thing is a distraction. I mean, when you had, I was just talking about Dr. Bright, he warned that if we don't get our shit together to get to, with this response to the, to coronavirus, that it could be the darkest winter in modern history. 
That's what he's warned. So don't think Trump doesn't know this. He does. So what does this have to do with Michael Flynn? Well, let me just do a quick refresher on who Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is. Michael Flynn spent decades in the military. He rose to the highest levels and became the director of, of the um, Department of uh, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. I had a brain fart for a second. The Defense Intelligence Agency under President Obama. Um, he had some problems there and Obama ultimately fired him. There are some disagreements. I'm not going to relitigate that. After he left re- the military, he retired in 2014, left the, the, the Obama administration. He opened up his own consulting firm, the Flynn uh, Intelligence Group or something like that, because he wanted to make some money now, right? What does he do now? He's out of, he's out of public service. And what do most people do? They go into consulting, they use their expertise and they make some money. Okay, that's not nefarious. But what does become questionable is who are you taking money from? Who are you doing this consulting for? Well, his firm wasn't doing much until around 2015. In 2015, Michael Flynn was signed with a speaker's bureau. And I'm signed with a speaker's bureau. Actually, I've done speeches for a couple of them. And the Speaker's Bureau brings you you potential jobs. They say, hey, this person or this university or this company, this association will pay you this to speak about such and such on this date. Do you want to do it? Yes or no? So you can you review there. I've turned down speaking engagements if it's for something or someone or the money's coming from somewhere that I personally object to. You have that option. Well, Michael Flynn in let me pull out my notes because this is important background on him. Michael Flynn in 2015, he decided that he was going to take some speaking engagements with, oh, I don't know, Russians. Yeah. Michael Flynn was paid $34,000, 45,000 total, but 34,000 went to him. The rest went to a speaker's bureau. They arranged for him to speak at the Russia TV 10th anniversary celebration in Moscow. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, Russia TV is a propaganda arm propped up by Putin's government. Okay. It's not CNN or, you know, ABC news here. It's a Russian propaganda news outlet. Flynn took money to fly to Moscow and speak at this event. And he was also seated near Vladimir Putin. Jill Stein was there also, by the way, in the room and a couple of other people. Um, That raises a red flag. What are you doing? Taking money from a Russian propaganda media outlet. That's number one. He also took money from two more Russian connected entities. One was a Russian air cargo um, company. And another was Kabersky Labs, which is uh, a Russian cybersecurity firm that has quite, that the U.S. government has in some places contracted to, and there's been questions about how safe Kapersky Lab is. Um, so he took $68,000 roughly from multiple Russian sources in 2015. Then he also started doing some lobbying, or well, he won't consider it lobbying, but consulting work for um, a company, it's called, it's a Dutch company called Inovo, but it's connected. It's run by a Turkish businessman and it's connected to the president of Turkey, Erdogan. 
who is a dictator. You may remember that in 2016, there was a failed coup attempt um, to overthrow Erdogan, and the Turkish government felt as though this cleric named Fatullah Gulan was responsible for it. Well, where does Gulan live? He lives in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's who the Turkish government thought was behind stoking the whole, let's get rid of Erdogan. So he was directing a coup from his home in the Poconos, apparently. This is what the Turkish government thought. Well, shortly after that, they contracted to Flynn to through this company. And so it wasn't like directly with the Turkish government, but we all know how these kinds of things work. So he's working for Inova and, and Inova, not Inova, that's a, that's a, the um, healthcare system here in Virginia. Inovo, he was given a 600,000, let me double check, checks notes. He was given a $600,000 contract for three months of work for this company. Well, by that time, in during that time, um, we found out some more information about things that that uh, Flynn was doing. But in 2016, Flynn was, so he's engaging with these uh, foreign clients. And then also he was an advisor to the Trump campaign, clearly lobbying for a position in the Trump campaign. Uh, Remember he led the chant locker up during the RNC, which a lot of people found unseemly as a military guy. He should not have been doing that. I was there. I remember it. And I remember cringing. I mean, I was cringing at a lot of things at the convention, but that was another moment that I remember thinking to myself, like, what happened to this guy? What is he doing? This is so inappropriate. Anyway. So throughout all of this, um, Flynn never disclosed that he was acting as a foreign agent. There's the Foreign Agent Registration Act known as FARA here inside the Beltway. Paul Manafort got in trouble for also not registering as a foreign agent for a lot of the shady foreign shit he was doing and the tens of millions of dollars that he was engaged with in Ukraine and others. But FAR has now become something that used to be a rather obscure thing. Like a lot of people didn't really, you know, nobody enforced FARA really. But under the Trump administration and all these people and shady characters and all the foreign work they've been doing, FAR has been coming up a lot. So Flynn didn't disclose some of this stuff. He didn't register. And once Trump won, he also wrote an op-ed uh, that was very pro-Turkey the day after Trump won and didn't just said that he did it on his own, that it wasn't part of the $600,000 that he was paid for by Inovo, this Turkish businessman's company. Yeah, bullshit. And it wasn't until months later, after he'd been fired, after all the stuff started to become, you know, beget, began investigating that he actually disclosed this and filed the proper paperwork. It wasn't until he was already in trouble. But after Trump got elected and it became clear that Flynn was going to become the national security advisor, he started doing kind of his own shadow foreign policy. And he had numerous contacts with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. And the two main contacts that became problematic were one where he was talking about asking Russia not to retaliate after the Obama administration put on sanctions on Russia in response to the Russian election interference. Um, And then, and they didn't, and we don't know, you know, did he promise them something? Did he tell them that the Trump administration was going to be friendlier to them? What was he doing? Because you can introduce yourselves to your foreign counterparts, but you can't engage in actual policymaking 
right? The Logan Act, which Harry Lippman will talk about um, why you're not allowed to do that. But you're, not, you're only supposed to have one president at a time, you know? So that's why it was important that um, he not be engaging in that. Like, what was the, what did you talk about? Were you promising things? What was happening? And then also there was another conversation concerning the United Nations and Israel and settlements and things like that. There was an issue going on with Israel at the UN and um, telling the Russians, kind of advising them on what they should do and what they should support and whatnot. So this is a problem. This is problematic. Now you have to understand something. Our national security agency, the NSA, we monitor a lot of these foreign um, uh, dignitaries and, and foreign agents and especially countries that are enemies like Russia. We monitor what's going on. And what we have in place is um, an ability to keep the identity of Americans who are on these calls, those identities are masked, okay, to protect civil liberties. Now, people who are in the intelligence community who have um, who have uh, security clearances of highest, there's different levels of security clearances. So if you have like a really high top secret SCI um, security clearance, you can request to have these Americans unmasked. If the content of the conversation is troubling enough that it's a threat to national security, potentially. That's what happened in this case with Michael Flynn. The Fox News crowd and the conspiracy theorists and the people who are apologists that want to erase history about how much interaction Trump and his people have had with Russia and how compromised they are, they want to erase that. And they've made up this entire conspiracy theory that the unmasking was against the law. And it was part of a coup attempt by the Obama people to take down Flynn and ultimately take down Trump as if Michael Flynn was some kind of victim here. No, he wasn't. Michael Flynn was engaged in very troubling conduct, conduct that would not have been acceptable for anybody who was going to become the national security advisor who was vetted properly the way other administrations normally do. When you have foreign contacts like that and you're taking money from them, you're compromised. It's very, very problematic. That's why people don't do it. They plan on going back into government service, especially at that level. Well, Michael Flynn wasn't completely forthcoming about the money, what kind of work he was doing, and he lied to the FBI about his contacts with Sergei, Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. Okay? Now, um, when the FBI, now the Obama administration and people in the FBI were alerted to these troubling conversations, which is why the counterintelligence investigation was opened in the freaking first place. There was more than enough probable cause or what they call predication. It was predicated on information troubling enough that the FBI went to go speak to Mr. Flynn. Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Untroubling enough for the deputy uh, attorney general, Sally Yates, who was a holdover from Obama, to warn the White House counsel, you've got a problem here with Flynn. It was reported that, Don, uh, that, that President Obama gave two pieces of advice to, to Donald Trump when they met before he was inaugurated. And he said, watch out for North Korea and do not hire Michael Flynn. Of course, those warnings went unheeded, as usual. And that's because people, yes, multiple people 
in different intelligence capacities, unmasked conversations Michael Flynn was having because they were troubling, inappropriate. And Michael Flynn, when the FBI went to go talk to him at the White House, he didn't have an attorney present. That doesn't matter. He voluntarily talked to them and he lied repeatedly. And the FBI was like, oh, because remember, they already knew what the contents of the conversations were because they were able to hear them. And Flynn lied about it. Well, fast forward, he ultimately gets fired. He was only in office for 24 days as national security advisor. And the reason he was fired, Trump said it himself. He lied to the White House. He lied to the vice president about his about these things. And he had to get fired. He had to go. Trump said it himself. He lied. Now, remember, Michael Flynn was also the one who Trump tried to get James Comey to drop the investigation into him after this all happened. And Comey was like, uh, no, which led to Comey getting fired and then ultimately the Mueller investigation and all of that. So Flynn has been at the heart of a lot of problematic shit with Trump because it all goes back to Russia and that shady shit that was going on. Jared Kushner during the transition, trying to set up a back channel to the Russians. Remember that? Yeah. Why? Why? Why all of this deception and all of this, you know, behind shadow stuff outside normal protocols? No, you know, why? It's a million dollar question. I'm sure we'll find out. I mean, we've seen lots of lots of things that could lead, answer that question from Trump being compromised financially and all these things. Who knows? But that's what happened with Michael Flynn. He pled guilty, not once, but twice to lying to the FBI and acknowledged that he was aware that it was a crime. But yet through the last three years, the Trump, the, the Trump crowd, the Fox News crazies, the conspiracy theorists over there have been ginning this up about how he was entrapped and there was no predication for the investigation in the first place and all, I mean, legally specious arguments. Um, I, I want to say a couple things also about um, uh, some things, let's see, that I wanted to mention about Flynn that were important. I mentioned how much money he got paid, the work he did with Turkey, which I think was underreported, and the fact that Mueller, through his investigation in 2018, he found out there were more details that that Flynn tried to cover things up. Um, an NBC News report from 2018, Bob Mueller disclosed more details of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's efforts to cover up the extent of his ties to the government of Turkey while he was a top official on President Trump's campaign and transition. The documents specifically state that a key component of Flynn's work for Turkey involved the government's effort to remove from the U.S. a Turkish cleric living in Pennsylvania. Remember I, I mentioned that guy? Right. Petula Gulan. That was part of his work. He didn't disclose the work he did for Turkey. The documents specifically state that a key component of Flynn's work for Turkey involved the government's efforts to remove from the U.S. a Turkish cleric living in Pennsylvania. Turkish President Erdogan accuses the cleric Fatullah Gulan of orchestrating a failed coup against him in July 2016. Flynn began working for Turkey a month later. Flynn's decision not to disclose that he was aiding the Turkish government in, quote, impeded the ability of the public to learn about the Republic of Turkey's efforts to influence public opinion about the failed coup, including its efforts to effectuate the removal of a person legally residing in the United States. Hello, this is a problem. 
Flynn's false statements about his connections to Turkey were included in his plea agreement with Mueller, announced in December of 2017. But that document described the project simply as focused on U.S. companies' confidence in doing business in Turkey. So this was, Mueller even discovered this, okay? And so this was a problem. Now, there's something else about the Flynn situation which makes him not a victim that I think is important for people to understand. Rick Grinnell, who is now the acting DNI, Rick Grinnell made the decision to, to put out a list of the Obama administration officials who, quote, unmasked Michael Flynn. This is something that would normally not be done. This is, this is um, secure information and it's classified, but Rick Grinnell was installed as Donald Trump's personal lackey in the director, as the director of national intelligence. He's acting, which means that he was not approved by the Senate. The law specifically states that the person who can be the DNI has to have an intelligence background. Rick Rennell does not have that. He was the ambassador to Germany. He has been, he want to talk about foreign clients and taking money. I'm just going to tell you some list, a list of some of the things that Rick Rennell was engaged in that would have disqualified anyone else, which is why he's acting and not nominated for the permanent position, because he would never get a freaking security clearance. But you, there's nothing in place to stop the president from installing somebody as an acting, which is a problem. Rick Rennell's PR firm, um, he represented people in um, a U.S. nonprofit funded by the Hungarian government. Viktor Orban, who's the Hungarian president, is a, is a dictator pro-Russia. The let's see, pro Moldova. Moldova is also one of those countries that that um, Vladimir Putin is eyeing to try to influence to take them back. Um, he did some shady shit in Nigeria. He represented he represented clients in Iran, China, Kazakhstan. He did not register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and his firm, Capital Media Partners also did consulting work for Dmitry Fertish. Who is Dmitry Fertish? You may have heard me mention that name before. He is a Russian oligarch. He is the oligarch who is currently a fugitive in Vienna because he's um, he was charged with bribery, trying to bribe an Indian official to get some mining uh, rights. And he's been on the run in Vienna since then. He's been fighting extradition. Why does the name Dmitry Fertish sound familiar? Perhaps that's because Giuliani has done work for Dimitri Furtish. Remember his freaking frack friends, Parnas and Fruman, and that whole disaster? When they got caught trying to flee the country, they had one-way tickets to Vienna because they were working for Furtish as well. Dimitri Furtish gave Fruman, or Parnas, I think it was Lev Parnas, a million-dollar contract to be his interpreter in the extradition case. Giuliani offered to work for Furtish to help prevent the extradition case. The guy is a Russian oligarch criminal. Who else worked for Furtish? Victoria Townsing and her husband, Joe DeGeneva. They are both Fox News flunkies. They have been all over Fox for the last three years, pushing the conspiracy theories about Flynn and about uh, how the Obama administration was doing all this illegal stuff. And they also were Michael Flynn during this whole process, because it's been years since he was sentenced, they've been waiting, right? He switched his lawyers in the middle of all of this and was about to withdraw his guilty plea. 
after he pleaded guilty twice. And guess who showed up on his legal team unofficially? They were very coy about whether they were um, uh, uh, advising Flynn. But it was Victoria Townsend and her husband, Joe Jadenova. Okay, bad news. They also did work for Furnish. So this is all very, very incestuous. Rick Grinnell, who is our current director of national intelligence in the acting capacity, who has helped to do Trump's dirty work alongside Bill Barr with this bullshit dropping the case of Flynn and now leading into this whole Obamagate BS with the unmasking list of all the Obama officials who did this. They did not do anything nefarious. They did not break the law. As a matter of fact, they did exactly what they were supposed to do because Michael Flynn was engaged in conduct unbecoming of a national security advisor and especially of someone who was uh, a lieutenant general and head of the D, former head of the DIA. He knows better. And it was for greed. I mean, I don't know what his motivations were, but, you know, greed is a hell of a hell of a drug. By the way, Rick Grinnell was also, um, like I said, he worked with Furtish. Dimitri Furtish was also a former partner of Paul Manafort. Yes, Paul Manafort did business. They were, he, was, he was brokering a deal between his other Russian oligarch, Darapaska. That's the guy that Manafort worked for for years, the Ukrainian. $18 million he made and that he owed him money. And, um, you know, the whole thing with Darapaska is very shady shit with Manafort. It was an $850 million deal to buy the Drake Hotel in New York City that was supposed to be uh, a joint venture with Darapaska and Furtish. It never happened. It fell through in 2008, but it's all very incestuous. All of it. Giuliani, Parnas and Fruman, Furtish, Grinnell, you know, Manafort, all goes back to illicit money. Let me say something else about that too. This whole thing that they think that unmasking was supposed to prove some kind of conspiracy from the Obama people against um, against Flynn and Trump ultimately by way of Flynn. Well, uh, someone I follow on Twitter, his name is Eric Garland. He's a former um, intelligence guy. He made He brought up a really good point. He said that now we see the list of who requested to see, you know, what the heck Michael Flynn was talking about to these foreign sources. In that is listed some people from a division in the Department of Treasury called FinCEN. FinCEN is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and their job is to investigate major uh, international, like money laundering, mob, you know, uh, like Russian mob, inner, uh, um, yeah, like major money laundering, major financial crimes internationally. FinCEN is no joke. Well, why was FinCEN, why were FinCEN agents asking to unmask stuff with Michael Flynn? Clearly, there was some question about his finances and money and where it was going to whom and how. So this is, this is actually going to backfire on them because it's going to expose that there was a lot more going on with Michael Flynn than just the Russian contacts that he lied about, perhaps, right? So these idiots think that they're doing something and they're actually making a worse case to show how guilty Michael Flynn actually was. And let me tell you something about that. One last thing before I bring in um, 
uh, Harry Littman, which is just interesting. During the December 2018 sentencing hearing, where we were supposed to get a final sentence for for Flynn, the Mueller team actually re- requested that there be no prison time for him because he was supposed to be cooperative. He was cooperating in the Russia investigation. Well, during that hearing, this was reported by Axios at the time, Flynn refused an opportunity provided by Judge Emmett Sullivan. Remember that name, because Judge Sullivan is no wallflower and he's been very tough on this case. And he has yet to actually accept the Justice Department request to drop the case. A judge has to approve it, and he hasn't yet. Harry Littman's going to talk about what happens with that and why. But um, Judge Flynn, um, I mean, I'm sorry, Michael Flynn refused an opportunity provided by Judge Sullivan to withdraw his guilty plea after his attorneys claimed for their own sentencing memo that he was misled about the circumstances of his 2017 interview with the FBI. Flynn instead told the judge he was aware that lying to the FBI was a crime. Flynn admitted this in court more than once that he knew lying to the FBI was a crime. So stop the, the Fox News people and Trump and everyone saying that, oh, he didn't know it wasn't bullshit. Okay. Sullivan blasted Flynn from the bench during the hearing. Quote, this is a very serious offense. A high ranking senior official of the government making false statements to the FBI while on the physical premises of the White House. He later admonished Flynn for his lobbying work for Turkey, saying, quote, arguably, this undermines everything this flag over here stands for. Arguably, you sold your country out. Sullivan also asked the prosecutor whether they had considered charging Flynn with treason. Okay. Now, Sullivan actually felt bad that he took it so far and even mentioned the word treason and he came back and clarified before the end of that hearing. And he said that, you know, um, he added, I'm not suggesting he committed treason. So don't read too much into the question I asked, because I guess he realized that that was pretty explosive. But that goes to show you the seriousness of Flynn's behavior. And the Trump administration wants you to believe that what he did was, you know, that he was the victim, that Flynn was the victim. No, he was not. And the Trump administration installed an acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia who has jurisdiction over these cases, who was another flunky of theirs, which was highly unusual because this is what Donald Trump is doing. He is completely flouting the law and Bill Barr is his, his toady on this. He is completely not acting in the best interests of the American people or of justice. This new um, appointment by Trump, because the U.S. attorneys, there are, you know, different districts, uh, jurisdictions around the country, right? Um, They are appointed by the president in office and some stay over, but they are career people. And the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia is an important district because they oversee a lot of, you know, national security cases, federal corruption cases, things like that. This is the jurisdiction that prosecuted Roger Stone that was considering the Andrew Andrew McCabe case, the the number two at the FBI who got in trouble and fired because he quote leaked information. They were considering his case, which got was definitely politically motivated. And now they're also the, overseeing the Flynn case. Well, back in um, earlier in the year, I think it was either February or January, 
the current U.S. attorney for D.C. was Jesse Liu, who was a Trump loyalist to some degree. She abruptly resigned and decided because they were they they lured her away with a job over Treasury, which was unusual that that required Senate confirmation. Well, she when she resigned to take that position or be nominated for it, normally what happens is the lieutenant, the next in charge would be the interim U.S. attorney just for continuity. They didn't do that. They installed this guy named Tim Shea, completely politically motivated. What did Tim Shea do? One of the first things that he did, he went back in and reduced the sentencing memo for Roger Stone's case. That was crazy. And four career prosecutors resigned in protest over it. That like never happens. That was the first thing he did. Then they continued to prolong the Andrew McCabe thing, which had already been determined that they were not going to prosecute him. And they were reopening that. They were looking into that again. What? And then what did they do? They went ahead and now we're messing around with the Michael Flynn case and decided that, oh, we're going to suggest dropping the case altogether. What? Dropping the case altogether? Well, right before that was filed with the court, one of the last career prosecutors from the Mueller investigation that was working on the Flynn case resigned also. So this whole thing is all politically motivated and it's politically compromised the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia with another Trump lackey, all to distract the American people from the failure of Trump's response and also because he wants political retribution against his perceived enemies. This is dangerous, folks. This is dangerous. We've got to get these people out. And that's why, you know, we got to vote him out in November. One of many reasons. So on that note, I'm going to bring in Harry Littman to talk about his perspective about what's going on since he worked there and he's a constitutional attorney. And like I said, he's uh, he's got uh, some insight that I think is, is valuable. So next up, Harry Littman. Um, someone on this week who has unvarnished opinions on what's going on, has a plethora of experience in the federal prosecutorial area as well as constitutional law. He's a former federal prosecutor, constitutional law professor at UCLA and UCSD. He's an LA Times legal columnist and also the executive producer of the Talking Feds podcast. Harry Littman, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. So pleased to have you on this week. We've got lots to talk about. Thanks, Tara. Pleasure to be here. So, Harry, um, in addition to all of the things I just listed that you do, you're a busy guy. You're also a whistleblower attorney in your spare time, if you have any. And I wanted to start off. To do, we're going to talk about Flynn and Obamagate and all of the all of the mess that's going on at the Department of Justice. But I wanted to start our conversation with the testimony of the whistleblower, Dr. Richard Bright. He was on the Hill testifying in front of Congress uh, in a private capacity, which was interesting uh, about his experience with the government's response to coronavirus or lack thereof, and his concerns. Um, what were your thoughts about? his testimony, what stood out to you? Yeah, I thought he was a very effective uh, witness. And what stood out to me is just the sort of 
candor and I mean you could say nerdiness but that's the kind of nerdiness we we need very scientifically driven sober um straight up and the contrast that it presented you know both with the well they've now been cut back but the daily kind of uh Trump uh whatever you would call them at his press availability and the the overall sense you get that the um, the federal government isn't necessarily on top of things and data driven. So he seemed really solid to me. And remember, um, the knives were out for him. The word had certainly come down. Dirty him up if you can. I'm a whistleblower lawyer, as you mentioned. And it's often when you prepare somebody for testimony, uh, whistleblowers are a little can be a little bit idiosyncratic or whatever. Not this guy. You know, he just like answered straight up. Uh, not simply credible, but deeply sophisticated. And then when he would pull the occasional um, really alarming soundbite, you could say the you know darkness that that awaits us, et cetera. I think it hit home uh, very strongly. So I, I think it just just by the contrast in his manner and the kinds of information he was giving, it was pretty damning to the sort of slapdash, erratic, and kind of politicized um, presentations from the, uh, the federal government and, and the White House that we've been getting regularly. And you immediately think, this is the kind of guy, this and Fauci, et cetera. He, you know, he doesn't make the final decision, the president, but this is the guy I want in the room. And so it's besides against the law, really unsettling that this is a guy who's been specifically ousted from the room because he dared to say that, you know, swallowing bleach or hydroxychloroquine or whatever is is something that's that's a bad idea. It's what you want him to say. You want him in the room. And we've had a long string now of the president's kind of uh, removing in in a very crass brazen way people whose messages he doesn't like here you have it but in life and death terms and um i i thought it was very sobering uh, um, among other things for that reason how unusual is it for the president of the united states to personally attack whistleblowers i don't think people realize how unusual that behavior is because Trump has made it so commonplace to do it. He hasn't done it to just Dr. Richard Bright. He's done it to many people who have spoken out and attacked them in ways that are, it feels like witness intimidation. I mean, in any, in a prosecution, I mean, you were a prosecutor. Could you imagine if the principal or someone who was uh, kind of involved in what the prosecution was investigating lashed out at witnesses like that? How unusual is this? Well, for president, it's unprecedented. It's also illegal. And it's not just lashing out. It's it's really concrete reprisal. So you're right. There's a whole pattern of this. And it's been completely, you know, uh, naked. And the best example, of course, is um, Atkinson, who had the nerve to actually um, proffer a whistleblower report that was 100 percent accurate and led to the impeachment. And when it was all over, like a, uh, you know, mob boss taking care of unfinished business, he, he, you know, put the hit out for him. 
and and fired him brazenly and and in broad daylight. That's been um, the the most striking aspect of it. Not not simply the reprisal, which you know unprecedented and illegal, but the absolute um, you know blatant brazenness of it. Really stunning, and it's it you know it changes the government. It, ch- it changes because critics are are weeded out, but it also changes the whole idea of having public servants who speak the truth and in the areas that you most want them to speak the truth, intelligence, uh, you know, science, matters of life and death. The message couldn't be clearer or louder. You do that, you're out. It's it's uh, it really is stunning, Tara. It is, and to remind people who Atkinson is, he was the intelligence community inspector general who signed off on the whistleblower in the Ukraine case, who said that the whistleblower's complaint was credible, and um, that led to ultimately the impeachment hearings and everything that followed after that. And Atkinson has a uh, an impeccable reputation. Um, as most inspector generals do, uh, inspectors general do, every cabinet agency has one. It's their job to be the watchdog of those cabinet agencies and to look into these things independently. And Trump has been getting rid of them left and right. He got rid of the HHS inspector general. He got rid of um, of Atkinson and others. Anytime, Glenn, uh, yes, right. Yeah, except, you Anytime know, there's accountability, thinks- he gets rid of them. Yeah, when he thinks it's going to go his way, all of a sudden he tells them, "I can't wait for the DOJ IG report." I mean, it's it's that was hard. So, <laughs> tra- right? It's so transparent, and you know, it's a heads heads I win, tails you lose approach to oversight. And you've been in any department. I was, at, you know, at, besides being U.S. Attorney, I was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General at at, at Justice, and Everyone knows this is a third rail. The inspector general is coming in. Even the attorney general wouldn't do a whisper. And, um, you know, Trump just is bull in a china shop saying, if I don't like what you say, you're out. It's a way of almost trying to rewrite history. Certainly, I'll, I'll borrow a line from Justice Kagan in her argument this week. It's a way of putting a, you know, a 10 ton weight on scales that are supposed to be objective. It's, you know, they're objective as long as you agree with me. And of course, since he's pretty brazen about uh, breaking the, the law or norms, and an honest inspector general usually won't agree with him. He'll honestly or she'll honestly report that uh, something improper happened and that's actually that's the thing you most want from them, and that is the the act the actual job disqualification in Trump's uh, executive uh, branch. It's you know topsy turvy. Frankly, I wish there were more courageous people in the government like Dr. Bright who would come out willing to take the incoming and speak the truth. During his testimony, he was very honest and frank about the fact that he raised alarms concerning the lack of N95 masks and other things in preparation for this pandemic that went uh, uh, ignored in the HHS. And then he was removed from the room, as you mentioned earlier. And what that did, it cost lives and endangered lives of our frontline health workers and others. And that is, I think, undercovered here. This is he is the smoking gun to demonstrate what we've been hearing with reporting from anonymous sources and from this one and that one inside the administration that Trump was not worried about 
the seriousness of this pandemic. He was worried about his reelection and how wearing masks and things and, and doing real preparation would impact the stock market and his reelection and dithered for 10 weeks over this. And God knows how many tens of thousands of people died needlessly because of it. And you know that there are others in this administration that know how inept this re response was and how Jared Kushner and all these other cronies were involved in it. And Dr. Bright has, uh, you know, uh, shine a light, shine a light on this in a way that I think we haven't seen yet. I wish more people would come forward and do it and take the risk for the good of You're the right. American people. It takes a lot. And he has to imagine his career in a way is over. Maybe he's coming to grips with it. And, you know, one thing that made him effective, he does shine a light, but very much in his own corner. You know, you're right. The the more lights that that shine, we'll we'll see. You know, dirty stuff. I I think uh, uh, with uh, with with Kushner with a pattern of decisions. I mean, the whole thing that he's highlighting. God knows where Trump. You know, gets cockamamie ideas about, but you know, name whatever the the subject is, whatever self-serving idea. The uh, the virus actually just came from China and and uh, a lab. Oh, bleach is going to be a great thing, or maybe um, sunlight. You know that that whatever those those are exactly the sorts of things that, of course, you want to run through the crucible of professionals. You know, do, the Dr. Brett himself. He's been there for for exactly this purpose, just waiting for years to, to be the guy who develops the vaccine, which, along with a few other things, is precisely the linchpin for what Trump wants so much. And what we all want so much, resumption of normal life. He is the best guy there. So uh, among other things, it's all counterproductive. You get rid of a guy like that and the um, logical consequence is some delay in the production of the vaccine, which we already know from Dr. Fauci would be, you know, won't be in time for school and we'd be very lucky if we have it for a year. And it's only that that really spells the end of this, you know, crazy and terrible episode. So it's both, you know, um, corrupt in a in a pure sense but also very self defeating it's the thing that will if we don't get a vaccine tougher days for the economy more americans die uh, the really bottom line um results that you know i i trump as you as you say i think his lookout is if the if these bad things come to pass how to how to um you know deny responsibility for them but nothing about really keeping uh, these bad things from coming to pass and having the best outcomes. That's right, which leads me to uh, the next subject matter in our conversation, which is this whole case with Michael, General Michael Flynn. <laughs> this thing has been going on for years, uh, since before the president took office. And I've been following this pretty closely because I have a friend who is a journalist who was befriended Michael Flynn and has been an apologist for him. Mm -hmm. And I've in, dis disagreed with her uh, symptoms, uh, her, her characterizations of, of Flynn's motivations and things. And um, it's caused, it's one of many issues that's kind of caused a bit of a, a bit of a split in our friendship because of the, 
the road she's decided to go down with these with these things here. But I, Flynn, I, I guess you have some sore spots with a lot of your former Republican friends on huh? the yes. ones who with the president. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, well, she's not the only one. hazard for yeah. you, right? Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. it's very upsetting, but uh, a reality uh, in the times we live well, in. Well, remember, I'm the guy who said that Bill Barr was an excellent choice for attorney general because I had worked with him before and God knows my You weren't the only I, one. I wasn't the only There were lots of people. Dan Abrams said the same thing. But anyway, lots of them, right? You know, people people have been revealing themselves to be run high and they affect friendships. That's all yes. I can say. It's it's true. Um, But the Flynn case has been very troubling to me uh, on a number of fronts, not only based off of his own conduct, you know, a former head of the Defense Intelligence Mm. Agency, Lieutenant General, um, you know, he was an intelligence guy, army officer, and his behavior when he left uh, public service and then went into becoming basically a foreign, an unregistered foreign agent for Turkey. That's right. Yeah, yeah, for Turkey and Russia. Uh, and then his behavior in between uh, during the transition, which is what got him in trouble. Uh, and then, you know, getting fired and then the prosecution and Russia. I mean, all of it has been very troubling. Will you please explain to my listeners why the actions by the Department of Justice to drop this case against Michael Flynn, where he already pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI twice. Why is this nothing short of sickening, as you say in your piece uh, last week in the L.A. Times? Why are dropping the charges against him nothing short of sickening? Yeah. And where do I start? Um you know, we, we've had a series of, you know, troubling, possibly politicized moves. And when you're in the department, and I was for many years, you get used to people charging that. But here, it, the, you know, this is, the, they are the guilty as charged because, and there's no other possible explanation. Okay, first. Um, their basic idea here is it was a not a not a solid or righteous prosecution uh, from the start. That is absolute lunacy. So this is a guy who, before he is in the government officially, is making you know substantive policy behind the back of the the then current administration yes they're going to be outgoing soon but we only have one president at a time and we're talking about our biggest geopolitical adversary and very important um, policies with them and he's trying to you know secretly a aggrandize himself and 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 b you know actually change policy that's a really serious and illegal matter for starters. But then after that, he lies about it. He lies, which is always the big tale. He lies about it to the White House, which then rebroadcasts the lie to the world. He lies about it to the vice president. Remember, Trump fired him That's for right. lying, the very thing he was convicted of and that he now say, you know, wants to say the FBI was, um, you, you know, somehow um, 
political themselves for going after. And having lied about it, the he is an absolute target for blackmail. It is a firing offense. And Kislyak or the Russians just say, here, comrade, you, you know, give us some information or we're going to we're going to drop this and you're going to lose your job. So, look, if he had lied about a conversation about the weather, it would be important, but this is really substantive stuff. So he's out there, you know, doing policy and lying about it. And that's in addition, as you say, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a mystery um, overall in the life of Flynn, who was pre um, previously a kind of bona fide public servant. But I think he just went for the money and he's, uh, you know, was doing stuff with with Turkey and Russia. You find this out as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you'd be derelict if you didn't try. I mean, you have a real problem on your hands. The incoming national security advisor, the number one uh, person next to the president, is um, uh, do you know do undertaking policy and lying about it. And in and in fact, for all these uh, suggestions that it's now that it's somehow all ginned up by the Obama administration. And in, in fact, the outgoing uh, Deputy Attorney General went over to explain to them, you've got a big problem. Now, when something like this happens, you must repeat, you must repeat, you must follow up with investigation. It was voluntary. They put him in the room and he lied about it. And before they did that, one of the, you know, Bill Barr last week turned over FBI agent notes, which you would never give to anybody. He did it and people made, made hay with it. And that was crazy also because, of course, they make the plan to hopefully get him to tell the truth. But if not, you must lock him in to the lie so you can neutralize him as necessary, either professionally or with criminal penalties. So it's not simply there's some suggestion out there. Oh, there was nothing going on. And they just kind of got him in the in a room. You know, this poor innocent who wouldn't have known. Of course, he knew what was going on to to lie about things so they could fire him. It's, you know, nothing. Nothing. Uh, it, it bears no relation to reality, and the, the, the sort of legal submission terror that they they tried to sell the judge that it, that the lie isn't in the law's terms material. That is, it doesn't really matter. No one would really care about it. Is you know just a complete um, fiction and an insult to the whole intelligence community, which, by the way, has been nothing but. Um, demeaned and um, um, and mocked uh, by by Trump since he took office. So an absolute righteous uh, prose uh, prosecution for starters. What he did was really serious. And now he pleaded guilty twice. He said specifically because he did do it. It was it was accepted. Never ever ever would you try to dismiss charges. No one no one I know from any stripe has ever heard of it, try to, you know, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory uh, that way, you know, years after he's pleaded guilty. And there's just not no inference possible other than um, the attorney general of the United States doing a whole different um, uh, approach to quote unquote justice for um, uh, you know somebody who who Trump has made a cause celebra, even though he fired him. In other words, it's an absolute assault on the rule of of law, on doing uh, justice without fear or favor, and that's what really sickens 
all the DOJ alums. It's serious, and he deserved to be in jail, et cetera, et cetera. And remember, as you say, he was also the first guy in the door, which you really want to have happen to cooperate on the broader investigation. But the lies that the department are propounding in front of the the judge, the stretches and dishonesty they're willing to go to to uh, do a solid for this friend of Trump is the antithesis of what all of us learned we were doing when we were there. And that's that, you know, sickening is really not too strong a term. I'll just say one final point. I was talking today with um, about uh, Senator Burr and this um, the, the new search warrant served on him. And, you know, in the past, people would have said, OK, he must, you know, obviously the FBI wouldn't be doing anything for political reasons. There must be a real crime there. But a lot of people are immediately saying, well, you know, Trump doesn't like Burr so much and he likes Leffler mm-hmm. better. And it actually casts a pall over Everything the department does, I'm sure assistant U.S. attorneys have to go into court and and encounter juries who just don't believe. And, and, you know, and this is the absolute coin of the realm. They just don't believe in the integrity of law enforcement and the Department of Justice because Trump has torn at it for years and the department has shown with its own actions that it doesn't deserve the reputation. That is, you know, taking that kind of institution down to almost banana republic levels, that's another just heartbreak. So I'm sorry, I've gone on and on and on. No, no. Wow. Okay. <laughs> spring. And yeah, it I mean, from the second it happened, I myself, I'm a little calmer in tone now, but like literally from the second it happened, I you know, I did. I had a, a you know, an explo- a, a tweet storm and followed by a you know very um, uh, high you know very feverish um, op op ed and then we did a I taped a something on Talking Feds right after that with a great panel Ron Klain Andrea Mitchell and Ann Milgram and you know a day had passed and I said you know was it as bad as as it seemed then and and to a person they said no it's worse right and they that you know given given the stakes again so a totally serious crime that the FBI totally had to investigate and a total, you know, um, a a, a total um, fantasy and, um, you know, pack of lies has, you know, that they've tried to sell to the to the federal judge to dismiss the action and a total two tier justice, one for friends of Trump, one for everyone else. You know, I think it's as bad from the DOJ's point of view as anything that's happened in the last three years. That is is really astonishing um, because you're not the only one who had such a a visceral reaction to what was going on. I mean, there is, again, and I can't remember in modern history when an attorney general has had two letters by signed by over 2000 former federal prosecutors and DOJ uh, officials demanding his resignation. Not once, but twice. Did you sign that letter? I, You know, because I work for the LA Times, I, I, I don't sign letters like that one way or the other. So don't want to, so I don't want to, um, you know, speak speak to its merits, but I'll speak to its its signatories. You know, people 
tend to lump everybody into the whole political stew and think, well, this is maybe they're Trump haters, whatever. First, they're not. If you look at the list, there's a lot of good Republicans and Democrats. But second, that's the thing as a, as a DOJ alum, you want to say it. No, it's not the case we're just political actors. They, they are, we really are versed in the rule of law and, and it's a, you know, the sacred obligation of the prosecutor and the oath of office to the Constitution, which everyone takes. So I'm just here to, to tell you that this isn't like 2,000 citizens or 2,000 Democrats right. or even 2,000, you know, people connected to Congress. Prosecutors saying this is really uh, should be um, an arresting, as it were, um, uh, gesture. They just, you know, they know they they really are, you know, play it by the book, believe in the values, believe in not speaking. You know, it, it's the biggest thing you can do to resign, as happened here. Here, oh, here's another huge point. If you're within the Department of Justice, not a single. Career prosecutor was on that filing. It all it stinks to high heaven so badly on and, the Flynn filing. And, on the Flynn filing, and didn't and, didn't someone resign that, right before that, the filing was? Time crony to do it. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm saying wasn't there a, a prosecutor who resigned before that like, filing? Or- and that's that was the sign like, whoa, something big is coming because resigning in that culture is a big thing. And likewise, speaking out like this, you know, the uh, to the extent people will just lump this in with more political, you know, Sturm and Drang and, and Trump being a divisive figure. It's more than that. DOJ alums really care about the place and really believe that this has tarnished it in a way that will take, I mean, God knows, how, you know, how long to to reverse. It also kind of doubles the stakes of the election because if there's some kind of, you know, public endorsement of this sort of thing and 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 all the other, you know, Trump um, escapades, it's as a matter of kind of political culture, just just heartbreaking. I mean, this 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 is really the DOJ has been dragged through the mud in a way none of us have, have ever seen before. You said on the Dan Abrams show recently that it was a big middle finger to the mission of the <laughs> Department of Justice. Which I didn't I, realize that until I saw it on the audiogram. But yes, <laughs> I guess I did say that. Yeah. Well, I think that's an apt uh, visual that everyone understands. You know, I'm from and New Jersey. We call it the I Jersey mean. salute. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Look, Barr knows this. Rosen, everybody knows this. It's not, you know, this is not the kind of thing. Well, it's a kind of aggressive argument based on my view of Article Two, and I'll make it so. No, 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 no. The 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 tissue of lies that this that's in this motion, this rule, this so you know, this motion to dismiss the charges, the factual and legal contortions. Everybody knows it. And that's 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 what I what I meant. It's not you know, you can't try to conceptualize it as, you know, well, just just different views of the law. It's it's a bad joke at best. Well, Judge Sullivan, who has presided over this case and has had um, little patience with the prosecution and the, the and the defense. Um, and now it seems as though they've merged, but, uh, he's had little patience with what's gone on here. I mean, we've been waiting for almost three years for, for the sentencing of Michael Flynn. So, um, 
Sullivan had admonished him in the past where he almost accused him of treason. Um, and so it seems as though now Judge Sullivan, because the case can't be completely dropped until the judge says so, right? That's right. So he and, has and said- the so one who he, says if it's completely dropped forever or just sort of provisionally and could be picked up again. Right. So he's made a move, which, um, and you can tell me about whether, how unprecedented this is. He hasn't, he hasn't just said, okay, and signed off on the prosecution's request to dismiss the case. He is now appointed a retired judge, Judge Gleason, to come in and actually argue what should have been the prosecution side of this case. Explain what that move means. What does that mean exactly? Because I know there's a lot of people who aren't attorneys that are like, we don't understand what's happening yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, one of the bad things about what the department has done, and this happens in other situations, like when they say, well, you can't indict the president. It never gets served up to a court to decide, and that's what we want to see. And the same thing here. Obviously, they, you know, they've crossed over to the other side, and they're in lockstep with Flynn. So Sullivan says, hey, we have an adversary system here. I'd like to see someone on the other side making the argument. And he has chosen a, a formidable person to do it. John Gleason, I, when I used to work in the Department of Justice, I would vet judge, you know, judge candidates and call all around and learn their reputation, et cetera. And John Gleason, when he was a young man, relatively was one such person. I vetted him and came to know him and his reputation well. And he is really an awesome advocate. He's the guy who put uh, the Gaudis in jail. He was one of the, you know, the, maybe the best mob uh, prosecutor of his generation. And he is whip smart and, you know, really stands for all these rule of law things. So he's going to be, he's gonna, just going to come in as a friend of the court, and make the arguments exactly as you um, say, Tara, that the department now won't make. So he will arm uh, Sullivan with the other side of things, which, you know, you always want a judge to be armed with. But that's foreboding. It's going to be a tough day for them. It's everyone's so what, pointed out. So then what think, happens exactly? All right. So first, there is a an very uncomfortable hearing where the where judge where the judge gets all the arguments about why this isn't material, the kinds of things I've just said, and why the motion doesn't hold water. But then also he might say, "Okay, I want I want to hear from this career prosecutor who who quit. I, let's put him on the stand and see what he thinks. And there's nothing the department can do about that. I'd like to hear these the transcripts of the conversations between Flynn and Kislyak that you apparently are saying are no big deal. Let's hear that. He's he's a one person now is the judge investigative body. And and it's all on the merits of what they were doing. And even if at the end of the day, and it's it's not clear, but you know, even if at the end of the day he doesn't actually oppose them, and it's hard for him. I mean, he can't take over the prosecution. He's going to put them through the ringer, and some great facts are going to come out. That's the power of an individual district court judge, and he will be armed with the best and most forceful articulation of why the motion that I've been, you know, trashing in the last 15 minutes really is a piece of trash. Uh, and, you know, that's that and it's going to be public and a really bad day for Bill Barr and the Department of Justice. Barr won't be there personally, but the guy who will be is the guy he got to sign 
the motion, who, by the way, didn't he, doesn't even have a bar number. He, he signed with the wrong bar number, which could normally get you sanctioned. That's, that's, very, unbelie- much, that's, that's very much a sort of aside. So we're talking about a very uncomfortable day for the Department of Justice. First, Gleason comes in and gives legal argument about what's wrong, just what you and I have been talking about, but in the strongest, most polished legal terms. And since he's not only a supremely uh, excellent advocate, but since he's right, since the department's um, uh, submission actually doesn't hold water, that's gonna you know make them come into it already with two strikes against them. But now, what can Sullivan do? Quite a bit, even if he doesn't dismiss. He you know he's a federal district court judge. He's gonna he wants to find out things so he can say, hey, I want to talk to this career uh, attorney who uh, re- you know, resigned from the, the case and hear what he has to say and what his views were. Apparently, there's an FBI agent who was also uh, making a big stink. I'd like to talk to him. Oh, you know what? These transcripts of the call with Kislyak between Flynn and Kislyak, which you say are no big deal, just uh, look forward to working with you. Let's hear those transcripts and see what they are. And you can bet dollars to donuts that it is Flynn trying to, in fact, really talk policy. He can, in other words, both factually, he can factually, and Gleason can legally in a way that that he, the judge, accepts, you know, completely shred the Department of Justice submission. And even if at the end of the day, uh, he doesn't deny the motion, and he could. He could just deny the motion and say, let's proceed to sentencing. But even if he doesn't, we're talking about leaving the department. I just hit that, sorry. We're talking about leaving the department with two big black eyes, you know, well-deserved. And of course, for the critics of of Barr and the action, it's a mixed blessing because it's a well-deserved criticism, but it only further harms the department's, you know, already greatly tarnished reputation. Back in February, you uh, wrote a piece. This was in response to the Roger uh, Stone case, where several prosecutors also resigned in protest over the reduction in sentencing um, suggestion coming out of the Department of Justice, which they did not agree with. So they resigned over it. And back in February, you said that the Justice Department's reputation is on life support and that Barr's appointment as, as AG is among the most odious achievements of the Trump presidency. That was before this. Yeah, look, I mean, if you want to carry the analogy, was this the coup de grace? You know, is this the, the actual uh, uh, knife uh, through the heart that really that really uh, has the reputation basically now in embers. You know, look, they still do work hard. Ninety eight percent of the professional people are doing are in, in it for the right reasons and, and working hard in courts every day. But it's the two percent that can control and overhaul it. And yeah, I mean, I got to say that that they're in a, a hole, the Department of Justice, in in you know what really matters most, the the confidence of the of the people. I mean, in part because Trump has um, unfairly uh, savaged them, but then in large part because Barr, at, you know, being in uh, in the tank for Trump, has justifiably. Uh, clobbered their reputation as, you know, a apolitical body that does justice without fear or favor. You know, they're it, it's it's 
certainly the lowest uh, that, uh, you know, he is going to leave. And we hope it will be in November, not later, because obviously Trump will keep him around uh, as long as he is there. He's going to leave the department in the worst reputation that it's been in my lifetime. And, and that's so ironic and such a bitter pill to swallow for the AG who said he, you know, was taking the job because he wanted to restore the institutional credibility of the Department of Justice. It's quite remarkable that his tenure has been the complete antithesis of what he claimed during his confirmation hearing that had people like you and Dan yeah. Abrams and my good friend Ellie Honig and others who Chuck Rosenberg. Right. And, right. And he said, Barr, oh good. You know, we've got someone yeah. who knows what he's doing. He's been there before and he'll stand and, up to Trump. He's right. a smart uh, yeah. And it wasn't long after that that he completely misrepresented the Mueller report. And right. that was the beginning of this slippery slope into the complete politicization of the Department of Justice in ways we haven't seen in modern history, which leads me to this. Well, let me, I just want to make interject one comment to tie it together because there's this weird agenda that Trump obviously has to somehow try to scrub from the pages of history the whole Mueller report. As soon as this happens uh, with Flynn, uh, Trump's first move is to call up Putin and, and you know, as if it's now been proven, the, the whole thing was wrong. And of course, if you read the Mueller report, the, the 67 transcripts that the Intelligence Committee just released, on the contrary, you know, he, he, he skated through the, the raindrops and not being uh, pro and not being found to have committed a conspiracy crime. And, and Mueller basically did find justifiably that he committed That's obstruction. Right. And all of this seems of a piece. What, you know, what is he doing exactly? And why is Barr, you know, intuiting that it's so important to Trump that he would, he would, uh, you know, take this kind of, uh, you know, do this dirty deed. And it just seems in part to have something to do with his obsessive, you know, weird, backward looking uh, goal to to, you know, dirty up the whole Mueller report and kind of scrub it from the pages of history. Because he knows that the Mueller report is damning and it basically shows that the president of the United States um, and his cohorts in his campaign may not have committed a the level of criminal conspiracy under the law, but there was a whole lot of colluity shit going on, as I've said throughout this, that is evidenced without question in volume one of the Mueller report. It should scare yeah. the hell out of every American what the Russians were able to do. And this and the the Trump campaign was willing to accept their help. It was clear that they favored Trump, oh, yeah. despite oh, yeah. what Trump tries to say. To, you know, again, revisionist history trying to claim even as recent as today on Fox News that that Putin favored Clinton. Everyone knows that Putin hated Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So that's just not true at all. But we also need to be reminded that it was Michael, the Michael Flynn case that ended up getting Comey fired because that's when Trump asked him during that private dinner, can you find it in your, you know, to, to drop this thing with Flynn and Comey wouldn't do it. And that was the beginning of that whole incident that ultimately led to the, to the Mueller appointment. So all of this goes back to Russia. And that itself was a radioactive crime. Just yes. on its own. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I, before we wrap up, so the bottom line here is that this nonsense coming out of Fox News and the right wing and Trump's acolytes about Flynn being a victim, 
him being entrapped by the FBI, this nonsense about that he couldn't have lied to the his lying to the FBI didn't matter because the original the original case was uh, not predicated. The counterintelligence case was not predicated. So therefore, lying to the FBI is not a crime anymore, apparently. That right there, I think, would make Martha Stewart quite upset since she went to prison <laughs> for lying to the FBI in a case that ultimately wasn't brought. So yeah. can you, is that, is that true? I'm not, I'm not the law expert here, but wouldn't that, that, that precedent now that you can, you can lie to the FBI uh, whenever you want, as long as the case wasn't, wasn't predicated properly, that doesn't matter anymore. Is, is I mean, are there a lot of people in federal prison that shouldn't be there now? If that's the new standard. It's totally true. And, and a lot of people who will be charged who will say, hey, I shouldn't be here. Look what you did with with Flynn. I mean, you're, you're, you make the you know, look, there's a there's this underlying notion that, oh, it's just a lie to the FBI. You know, this is why Libby got prosecuted and many, many people do. It often is the lie that act, and and the and you know the DOJ took a big one to punch this week because not simply Flynn which you can bet any every defense attorney and every district office in the country is going to be shoving back in their face if they're accused of a false statement but then the um the bridgegate reversals in the Supreme Court in general you know the uh the FBI when it goes into the field it doesn't have a, a uh, thank god a videotape of everything that's ever happened in the past it investigates and a and a, a really big part of its arsenal is being able to get at people who obstruct you know Anybody, you, I know, you're in a room with the FBI. Lying is a serious and and uh, bad thing, and it's and just as a legal matter, it's the very rare lie, like you know, oh, I'm 46 when I'm 47, that wouldn't be material. Material means, you know, it could actually influence, have some real impact in the world. And as you've just detailed, and I and I went on my high horse about, <laughs> obviously it could have, and it did. So I'll put it this way. If this were the law, all kinds of guilty people should walk, and more importantly, all kinds of guilty people in the future will. And this is putting prosecutors all over the country in a very uncomfortable position of having to, to say, well, yeah, that was Flynn, but we have to ignore that. Why do you have to ignore it? Don't you, don't you do the same justice to uh, rich and poor, to friends of Trump and otherwise? They're going to be armed with uh, you know, arguments in front of juries, judges, and et cetera. It's just a big... Uh, you know, uh, chain around their necks that that among so many other things, uh, Bill Barr has now installed. Do you know what Obamagate is? <laughs> Can you tell us? Well, yes and no. I mean, I've heard <laughs> the term these last couple of days. It turns out that I guess he's you know responsible for for everything, including World War II. But but as best I can tell, you know, people have actually been. Um, uh, crazy enough to ask Trump, what do you mean exactly? And no one has an answer. But I mean, very loosely, let me talk about something concretely, that somehow the whole Flynn thing was was all like, you know, because it was done when it was still the Obama administration, it was somehow a nefarious plot to get at the Trumpers before they would even start. And as I said before, 
it is the exact opposite. The outgoing deputy attorney general realized there was a national problem of national security that any patriot would care about, walked over to the White House and said, you got a problem on your hands. And Mike Flynn alerted them to it, which is not what you do if you're looking to bring him down. And indeed, the fact that they were unconcerned about it, I think, gives rise to you know, a suspicion, not a beyond a reasonable doubt suspicion, but a suspicion that maybe people in the White House did know about what Flynn was doing. Maybe, in fact, he was even bragging about it. But uh, yeah, I think Obamagate is this loose, you know, Obama did uh, did uh, everything. And he, by the way, he's not an American uh, citizen and he has bad dental hygiene. <laughs> this idea of uh, unmasking, Okay. Um, This is this is something that outside. Yeah. Outside of the intelligence community, no one really uh, says this. This is a term that is um, within the the National Security Administration, a national security agency. When you are when they listen in on foreign calls, it's to protect the identity of American citizens um, and the certain very highly cleared people that have top security clearance can request to have that person unmasked, right? If they feel as though what's being heard or discussed that they capture is so egregious that they need to know who the hell is this person that's talking with foreign entities about something of national security interest. Am I right in that? Can you explain what is unmasking and why is the Fox News crowd running around acting as though this idea of releasing the people who requested the unmasking of Michael Flynn is somehow a grand conspiracy to take down Trump? Right. I mean, it's almost a misnomer. It sounds like, you know, some kind of great, um, you know, stripping revelation. On the contrary, it happens all the time. And let me just take a step back and say, we're talking about life and death matters. If people know who's a spy and who isn't, people get killed for that by That's our right. adversaries, people who help us and and are, you know, known are, you know, in the in the world of national intelligence and espionage, literally, you know, sources are everything and people get killed for it. So, yes, there's a lot of that. One thing the Fox News folks have, I think, actually said is, you know, this is totally unusual what happened to Flynn. Not at all. It happens hundreds of times a year. And it's, you know, it's basically a, a way of making sure that your team and the other team, you know, you know, sort of uh, who's on first. And And it is so essential. But even if it weren't, even if it happened rarely, when a guy who's an unregistered agent for Turkey and is, you know, has these financial motives and, you know, is talking with the Russian ambassador and then lying about it, if you have, you know, five unmaskings to do a year, that sure would be one of them. So, A, it's not unusual. B, it would be totally justified in the case of uh, Flynn and see, you know, it's 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 done for really life and death uh, issues. People, you know, this is a whole everyone's been thinking about this in terms of domestic criminal law, saying, for example, this uh, this federal law of the Logan Act, I won't bore your listeners with it, you know, maybe isn't a fair predicate. They should be thinking about this as a counterintelligence operation. Our most, uh, you know, vicious, feared and aggressive geopolitical rival is, you know, having 
relationships with a with a non-government guy yet that could compromise him. For the national security of the U.S., that is a, a five-alarm fire, much more even than somebody who might be taking a little money here or there. I mean, that this the prominence of him and the flagrancy of, of lying about stuff, uh, you know, ma- makes this the you know in- incredibly um, exigent to get to the bottom of, which is which is now the big sin that Bill Barr and and the president are accusing the FBI of having done, doing their absolute bedrock job. It's pretty scary to think about that this is the guy that's being claimed as uh, is, is being painted as a victim when the national security of the country has been compromised and was at stake during all of this, which is why Completely. people in the Obama administration in, during the transition were hair on fire saying, do not hire this guy. We've got a problem here. And they have the evidence of it. It's pretty cut and dry. Um, before before we go- They did think- solid. You know, you've got a real problem here. We're going to tell you about it. Right. Because national security is more important than red-blue issues here. And, and they've just uh, debased it into- red, blue, and completely distorted it. On a number of occasions. It's it's yeah. unbelievable. Intelligence didn't used to fall into those red, blue categories. It wasn't a right. tribal thing. And now it has become that. This whole bullshit idea of the deep state and this nonsense conspiracy yeah. theory stuff is, it's it, it's alarming on, on so many levels. And it's um, taken hold. Yeah. That's right. Uh, before we go, and thank you so much, Harry, for your time. You've been really generous with your time. This is such a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you thank for two hours about it all. Thank uh, you, thank you. What can you please explain to the American people how out of bounds the acting DNI director of national intelligence, Rich Rich Grinnell, is in his behavior and what he's done? Sure. I mean, he's not he's not acting in the service of intelligence. He's acting in the service not just of Trump's policy views or that Trump's like, a you know, special hawk or dove or whatever. He's acting as is everyone in the government. For the electoral, uh, you know, the re-election prospects. By the way, he's somebody who, by law, must be must have deep uh, intelligence community uh, experience. It's in the law. He has none. It's just another law that that Trump breaks and gets away with. And he was installed specifically to help him win uh, re-election. So he, you know, the the information he's providing to. Congress that will then become uh, uh, public. There, there's no intelligence reason for that. That's to try to, you know, dirty up uh, the, Trump's opponents. So he, you know, he is like everyone else, a political crony, and in the area that, you know, the two areas where it matters most, intelligence and and justice, uh, are uh, you know now the most extreme examples of a, you know the complete takeover of political base political considerations and of a piece with the because the kind of politician Trump is his sort of he's a one trick pony who just um, disparages and tries to demonize his perceived enemies. That's that's the way he gets enthusiasm going. That means that our director of national intelligence and our attorney general are serving that kind of, you know, base political function on top of everything else. It's pretty damn scummy. Uh, Amen to that. And that's why uh, people like myself are working so hard to make sure Donald Trump is a one term president for the sake of our not only our justice system, but the health of our republic. We just this is not 
okay. It's not normal. And um, they represent an existential threat to our democracy. And this can't stand any further. Harry Littman, thank you so much. Uh, people, please. Sarah, it was really fun. Really thank fun you. to be able to go into this more depth. It's a, a great conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. I want people to check out your podcast, Talking Feds. Uh, oh, God a- bless you. Yes, we've yes. got Andrea Mitchell, Ron Klain on the current one. And we just did a one-on-one with uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. We're doing a series of the Democratic candidates. And I'm actually, the the whole podcast itself, this is this is a scoop for you. Uh, we're, we're, you know, in the, we have to sort of uh, tie up the details, but it's going to be affiliated with the LA Times. So for me, it'll be one-stop shopping and I'll have the great, you know, uh, wind behind my sails of the terrific LA Times podcast um, operation. That's fantastic. You have a, an amazing lineup of of talking feds. Some of my friends over there, like Asha Rangappa, Josh Campbell, uh, Mimi Roca, Ellie. You have a, a lot of great people. Maya Wiley, just yeah. a, a fantastic group of talking feds that are included <laughs> in your podcast. Ron Klain was just on my podcast two weeks ago. He, right, um, I saw I Juliet him. is on yours all yes, the time. Yes, that's awesome. right. Good friend yeah. of mine and a fellow uh, CNNer and Harvard fo- person. So, right. and you are a Harvard alum. It's all you know. We all uh, oh, are in this together. We're you know? part of the deep state conspiracy. Long <laughs> live the deep state conspiracy. <laughs> That's right. Ay ay ay. So yes, <laughs> check out talkingfeds.com. Check out Harry. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Harry Litman L I T M A N. Check out his column at the L A Times. Uh, Harry, keep up the great work, and I'll be listening to the Talking Feds for the in depth insight on all this stuff uh, that you provide uniquely. Likewise. Thanks so much, Tara. Thank Stay you. Stay safe. Again, a big thank you to Harry Lippman for joining me. Um, that was a great conversation. Uh, before I end, just my quick little feel-good story of the week it has to do with me personally. Uh, last weekend was Mother's Day and I love my mom and I couldn't take not being able to see her anymore. And my husband and I have been very diligent in our quarantining and being very careful about things. So we made the decision to drive up to Jersey and surprise my mom for Mother's Day. And she was thrilled. Of course, she had no idea. And I also bought her these really cool um, gold dipped roses from I Hate Steven Singer. If you listen to Smirconish or Sirius XM, you probably hear the, the advertisements all the time. I just think, what is this I Hate Steven Singer? He's a jeweler. He's based in Philadelphia. And he sells these really unique, real roses that are dipped in gold and they're beautiful or so cool. And this year he was donating part of the proceeds of his sales to help first responders in Philadelphia. Um, he would buy meals from local restaurants to help them and then donate those meals to frontline medical staff, etc. So I was all for a good cause. So I was happy to patronize. I hate Steven Singer. Thank you. Beautiful stuff. They didn't pay me to say that. I was just very thrilled with them. So anyway, um, so when we were in New Jersey, I also had a chance to go visit my grandfather's grave, which is not far from our house in New Jersey. I just thought it was important. I talk about my grandfather often. And, you know, he was um, a World War II veteran. He was the police uh, captain in my hometown for 40 years. Um, He was a volunteer fireman for 71 years. And, you know, my grandfather was the Setmayer family has a lot of roots in my hometown of Paramus, New Jersey. So we went to go visit my grandfather's grave. And every spring we have lilac bushes along our driveway. We have a long driveway back to our property. And every spring my grandfather would 
cut bunches of lilacs. They're beautiful. And he would sell them either in front of the house on the street or down, down in the corner. And everybody knew that they could come to Cedar Lane and find my grandfather's um, lilacs. And uh, he's been dead now for four years. And my mom, she couldn't bring herself to sell lilacs anymore, but she would still, it's still my whole life, my childhood, everything reminds me in the spring, lilacs and my grandfather. And for my mom too, because those lilac bushes have been in our family for about a hundred years. They've been there from the time they moved in on the property. So we're very traditional with things. So we cut some lilacs because they were still in bloom and brought them to my grandfather's grave and cleaned it off and stuff. It was an absolutely beautiful day. And then there was a flyover. So New Jersey, the New Jersey National Guard um, did an F-16 flyover, which was, we see kind of that stuff all the time in DC, but it's cool for people who don't get to see that all the time. And it was just really, it was just a beautiful moment. Like the coincidence of us going to the um, grave and putting the lilacs and kind of just hanging out with my gramps and my great grandparents, they're buried right next to him. Um, And then like this really cool flyover, you know, it was very, it was just surreal. So I just say all that to say that the tradition, it's important in your, you know, especially in this, in these times to remember your loved ones, things that are important to you, family, and, and keep those traditions alive, you know, honor, honor those who have passed and just, uh, just be, be kind to one another. So that's my feel good story of the week. My grandfather got his lilacs and, um, we got an F-16 flyover. So it was pretty cool. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmanger or at honestly underscore Tara. Be sure to follow the, the podcast Twitter on Instagram at the Tara Setmanger. And stay tuned. I will see you next week. Stay safe.